the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you new to the show, welcome. Now, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk. sometimes we talk further about estate planning and elder law, which we're going to be doing today with Barbara Speedling. But we also usually talk about politics, history, religion, nostalgia, whatever. And we're going to be talking about the 1936 Olympics. Adriana, do you know anything about the 1936 Olympics? I do not. Okay. <laughs> Basically, that was the and welcome to the show, Adriana. Thank you. And also in the, in the background over there is my wife, Beth. I'm here. 1936 Olympics was held in in Nazi Germany, Um, and part of it, you know, there were a lot of African-American athletes, obviously, on the American Olympic team that went to Nazi Germany, and they weren't well-treated at that time. Although, in in contrast to that, we talked to Colonel Brown a few years ago, and he was talking, he was a pilot who was shot down over Austria during World War II, a Tuskegee Airman, African-American. He was shot down, and he said that the German Luftwaffe treated him very fairly as a prisoner of war during World War II. So it's an interesting uh, concept. But anyway, we're going to start with our estate planning questions. Beth, you're number one. You want to go with your question? Absolutely. The first one then is from Caroline. Dear Mr. Connors, my grandmother passed away. Her estate consists solely of a house, her former residence. She left a will leaving everything to my father and his sister, two equal shares to decedent's children. Sister's husband was appointed as executor. Will was never probated. Executor is not taking action regarding the probate nor the estate. Two questions. As for the house, can the deed be transferred to both my father and sister without probating my grandmother's will? And can my father move to probate the will even if he's not listed as executor? 
Okay, now th these are good questions. Now, there are a couple of facts. I'm going to assume, for the sake of the question, that the, the two children are the only two children. There's not another child. There's another, another child who passed away who left children. So that there are only two children in the family. In that case, after a few years, two years from date of death, the children could transfer the property to their own names, what we call an heirs at law deed. Now, there always might be a question with title. It's not the ideal way to do it. The ideal way to do it in this case would be to probate the will. And again, if there are only two children, I don't know what objections there could be with the will. But I, I can tell you, one, if for the sake of argument, grandmother was in a nursing home and she had a nursing home bill paid by Medicaid, which may be a lien against her estate, then I might wait and not file the will for probate, because if the will gets filed for probate, New York City Medicaid, assuming she's in the city again, could file a lien against the estate, and we've got all sorts of legal problems. So yes, you can transfer the deed as heirs at law. Uh, it could cause complications with the title company when you eventually do sell the property to whomever. They may ask, is there a will? Was it probated? And you, you never want to lie, obviously. You never want to lie to anybody. So the ideal way would be to probate the will, but a couple of provisos, if if there is a possible Medicaid lien, maybe we'll want to hold off on probating the will till the statute of limitations is run. And again, what's the plan for the house? Do we want to sell it right away? Do we want to hold it forever? Does somebody live in the house? And the, the general idea is to hold the house. If, if that's the case, maybe we don't probate the will right now. But these are questions that we can discuss and talk about. And if, if you want to schedule an appointment with our office, you're more than welcome to do it. Oh, and the, the last part of the question, can my father move for probate even though he's not listed as executor? Yes, he can say I'm a beneficiary of the will. We want the will to be probated and the court will listen to that. Yes, he can. So again, but if you want to schedule an appointment with Connors and Sullivan, you're more than welcome to do it. All right, Adriana, you have a question. I do. The second question is from Melissa. Dear Mr. Connors, my brother and I co-own a two-family house. Both our names appear on the deed. He would like to remove his name from the deed so that I take full ownership. We have already agreed on an amount. The mortgage is only under my name. Could you please provide some basic information about how I can go about doing this, and would there be any repercussions? Thank you. Well, basically, we would have to sign a, a deed between you and your brother. I assume you don't need to refinance or whatever, and, and that would be another question. But yeah, your brother can sign a deed over to you. We would have to try to figure out what the transfer tax would be on a sale. It would depend on the, actually, the money that's passing hands and the part of the mortgage that's being transferred over, if any. So we'd have to figure out the transfer tax. Let's say if it was a, a $500,000 transfer, because remember, we're talking about half the house, not the whole house. But let's say it was a $500,000 transfer. Then at that point, it basically, the city would be owed, the city and state would be owed about $7,000 in transfer taxes. So that should be paid. What the repercussions would be from your brother depends. How did you acquire the house? Did you both buy the house together? Did you depreciate part of the house? Did you inherit the house? Uh, we'd have to figure out your brother's tax basis and what the repercussions would be for him tax-wise. Now, you know, like if you inherited the house, we're going to say it's a million-dollar house. His half is worth five hundred for the sake of argument, for the sake of example. So if your parents left you the house and your last parent when your last parent passed away, the house was worth $800,000. And if you didn't write any part of the house off, didn't take any write-offs, depreciation, your brother would pay a capital gain. And I'm simplifying it. Let's say it was worth 800 when your parent passed away. His half would be 400. He sells for 500. He would have a $100,000 capital gain. You know, we can always figure out the, the, the capital gains tax. It's really not that hard. And I, I do have to say, in, in a lot of cases, when people are doing these transactions, they don't take, you have a good question about repercussions. Some people just transfer deeds and they don't have 
any idea of what the tax consequences may be on transferring a deed. Sometimes people just transfer a deed, they don't worry about the taxes, and then somebody gets hurt a few years later. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough asks one of the questions emailed to us on his radio show for the benefit of his listeners, and we're going to take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that uh, Michael Connors of Connors and Sullivan Law, uh, which specialize in estate planning and elder law, will be here to answer one of your actual questions. And, Mike, this week's question comes from Gary. He says, my Aunt Millie is in a nursing home, and I took my uncle to visit her the other day, and the nursing home told us that he has to spend all his money to pay for his aunt, for my aunt's care. How will he survive when all the money's gone? Is this true, and can you help? Mike Connors, he sounds desperate. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, the wrong advice is given out. Basically, assuming they're New York residents, and, of course, that's a big assumption, I guess, but if we're able to transfer all the assets from the wife's name to the her husband's name, uncle, whatever in this case, then the month after we finish transferring the assets, he can sign what's called a spouse refusal, and the wife's nursing home bill will be picked up by Medicaid now, and, and depending where you live in New York, in some places, if uh, the uncle has a million dollars or something like that, they may sue for support, but even then they get pennies on the dollar. But no, he does not have to use all the savings to pay for his wife's nursing home care. All right. So if someone else is in that situation right now, friends, what you need to do is you need to get on the phone to Connors and Sullivan and ask his great team about how you can uh, find the same kind of help. 718-238-6500 is the number. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. You're going to talk to his great team. All the girls that answer the phone are just wonderful. They can't wait to help you when you call. And Mike and his team of really uh, established and very gifted uh, lawyers are, are ready to go to work for you. I have used them personally. I know of what I'm talking about here. He will also answer more of your questions on his show on Saturday mornings. Uh, you can send him to askmikeconnors at gmail.com, askmikeconnors at gmail.com, and then make sure you listen to Ask the Lawyer Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. Now you can listen to Kevin each Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock on 570 The Mission and at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer, 970. Kevin's on from Monday through Friday. Now, on Wednesdays, Kevin does a, you know an extra hour with John Katsimatidis. But again, if, if you want to check with Kevin, check in with Kevin Monday through Friday on WMCA 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock, 970 The Answer at 5 o'clock. So thanks again to Kevin. Now, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. 
We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, again accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here. And one of the attorneys from our office, Adriana. Hello. So, Adriana, you have a question in front of you. You want to read it to the audience? Sure. So, Tom from Staten Island asks, Hi, Mike. I am interested in applying for home care Medicaid. However, my monthly income is around $3,000 between Social Security and my pension. Am I ineligible because of my income? Is there any way for me to be able to apply and qualify for home care Medicaid even though my income is so high? Yeah, and that, that's a very good question because the, the short answer is technically if you have $3,000 a, a month worth of income, you're not eligible for home care Medicaid. But guess what? If you take roughly $2,000 a month out of that income and put it in what we call a pooled income trust, you will be eligible for Medicaid. And that's assuming that you're over 65 or disabled and meet some other requirements. So what's a pooled income trust? Well, let's say in Tom's case right now, he has $3,000 a month income. We take $2,000 a month, put it in what we call the pooled income trust. That has to be run not-for-profit, approved by Medicaid. That money then is used for your benefit. So if you own a house, it's great because anybody knows who owns a house. You can have any amount of expenses, you know, pay for the upkeep of your house, pay your real estate taxes, your insurance, gas, electric, cable. Now, if you rent, it can be used to pay for your rent. And let's say you live with your, you know, your children and you're not paying rent. You don't own a house. Well, we can use it for food bills. You know, you could buy a car and use it for carbon rent if we have to. But basically, we have to spend that $2,000 each month. Now, we could prepay a funeral over time. You know, let's say you have a little bit too much income. You got $5,000, $6,000 a month income. We could take that income and let's say pay for your prepay your funeral. Again, we could buy a car and buy pay car payments. We can pay rent to your children. We can buy things. So, But the question is, if your income over basically $1,000 a month, we have to spend each month. If we don't spend it, you could potentially lose it. But at $3,000 a month, it's usually not that hard to spend $2,000 a month. And again, if you own a house, the $2,000 could go on the house. If you rent, it could be used to pay for your rent. Now, it could be paid for your food bill. Again, gas, electric, cable, whether you rent or own. So there are ways to spend the money. But if you want any advice about that, you're more than welcome to come in and and talk to us at uh, Connors & Sullivan. Adriana, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and where'd you go to law school? Where do you live? Where'd you grow up? So I went to law school at CUNY Law, um, part of the CUNY system. I grew up here in Brooklyn in Sunset Park. And what was the other one? (laughs) Where are you from originally? (laughs) Originally, I am from Mexico. I was born in Mexico, but I've been here in Brooklyn since I was about two years old. Okay. Now, what parish do you belong to? I belong to St. Michael's. Over in Sunset Park. So they're over on 4th and 43rd. 
Okay, do you know anything about the history of St. Michael's? Um, very little. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't well. let Father Kevin hear that. <laughs> okay, okay. Don't One of the things, Beth, you know, who, you know whose family used to go to St. Michael's? Who? Lawrence Tierney. Oh, who was my father's father's favorite actor and I guess one of my favorite actors. And we'll, we have to, you know, we have, Chris, why don't we see if somebody's ever written a book about Lawrence Tierney and maybe we can get that guy on the the show. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to talk to Barbara Speedling about taking care of your parents at home. And then we're going to be talking about the 1936 Olympics. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Yep. And Adriana. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest right now is Barbara Speedling, and she's a quality life specialist, and she deals a lot with the problems of aging. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon. Okay, so what exactly what exactly do you do? What What do you do in your profession? Predominantly, my role in long-term care has been as an educator in areas of regulatory compliance and quality assurance, but I specialize in areas related to behavioral health, working with people with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other types of memory impairment, and those people who are challenged by mental health problems. And certainly now we hear a lot in long-term care about people with uh, issues of addiction and substance use. Uh, related to opioids, things that are happening, you know, certainly around the country uh, we are seeing in long-term care. So I predominantly work with uh, clients locally and do a lot of public speaking at conferences, uh, you know, trade 
uh, assemblies and so on in education. Uh, on those types of topics, uh, abuse prevention would be another area that I talk with people about, um, which all comes back to understanding, you know, who your customer is and the things they're facing. And so uh, that would be probably at the core of most of what I do. Now, families sometimes, and a lot of people say this, the, the disease they dread the most is Alzheimer's or dementia. And what does a family do, one, in planning for that, and two, if they have a loved one who is suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's? Okay, well, let's talk prevention first for the average person. Um, certainly, I think that we see the people who develop a dementia, not necessarily Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, but there are over 100 types of dementia diagnoses that might be caused by any number of things, a brain injury or a related uh, disorder like Parkinson's, uh, those kinds of things. But when you're looking at just the average person who runs the risk of some memory impairment the longer that we live, and certainly we're living longer, would be to stay active intellectually, socially, um, making sure that you're learning new things. They tell us uh, if you read some of the publications by Deepak Chopra or by uh, Dr. Keku, the neurologist, they talk about the fact that every time you learn something new, your brain uh, develops new opportunities, new connections and opportunities to learn and retain that information. So that would be the first thing. The other thing you can, can you do repeat now that again? That, can you just repeat, rephrase it? So learning something new, can you give an example? Sure. Well, every time you endeavor to learn something new, say a new language, your brain treats that new information as something that needs to be stored. Uh, in layman's terms, the best way I can describe it is that it triggers the brain to recognize that this is new information and we need to store that, which causes the brain to, you know, go into action now and actually do things that are not rote memory. So for instance, uh, someone with Alzheimer's dementia can probably recite most nursery rhymes that we learn as children, but that's old memory. They're not learning anything new. They're just repeating what's already there. But to learn something new challenges your brain to learn, you know, to learn and to, to retain that information. So learning new things is helpful to your brain, challenging your brain with uh, other kinds of things like word games and puzzles, things that some people do now only by computer, um, you know, using your brain to do those things uh, in an old-fashioned way, if, you, uh, if I can't think of a better way to describe it, but using the brain to do those things manually that you would have ordinarily done by Googling it, you know, trying to uh, stretch again your opportunities to use your cognition. You know, technology is great, but it also causes us to be less curious. And so when it's not as hard to learn information, I would imagine that your brain doesn't get as much exercise as it could if we were more curious and more manual in mathematics and things of that nature. At least that's the way I have um, interpreted the things that I've read and been taught, you know, by physicians and others that work in the field. All right, so I interrupted you. I'm sorry, but I thought the point was worth repeating. So what were you about to say? Well, I was going to say that if you are also someone who is concerned about a genetic linkage, and certainly we know that Alzheimer's dementia is a an inheritable uh, disorder, uh, there are you know some uh, genetic testing opportunities now, uh, and if people were interested in the latest technology and advances in you know seeing who might be predisposed you can certainly contact the national or even your local 
chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and they would be able to give you information on the latest trials and testing and things that you can do that are preventative. They actually have excellent services to, you know, walk people through those uh, fears of diagnosis and so on. You know, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, I lost my car keys. I must have Alzheimer's disease. That certainly isn't Alzheimer's disease. An example of early Alzheimer's might be that your spouse uh, got dressed for work, but they put their underwear on over their pants. So they remember that they need it, but they don't remember the order that it goes in. So that would be something that would be a red flag that this is very different, you know, or, or they might begin to accuse people of stealing things that they can't find, or that maybe they had 10 years ago and they thought they still had it, and now they think you took it because they can't find it. Those are early signs of, of dementia. Generally, uh, in my uh, experience, an Alzheimer's dementia could begin to show signs maybe 10 years prior to anyone really thinking that there was something terribly wrong because the beginnings are very subtle, you know, changes in personality. So if you're worried, you know, that this might be something that is in your family history, then you're going to want to pursue you know, a more, um, a more appropriate medical intervention of testing and seeing what's available, you know, so. Um, well, what can be other, done? Let's say there are some signs or you have a family history. What, sh- what should you be doing? Well, there are some medications that can be prescribed in very early stages. Um, uh, you know, the various brand names, Aricept, I'm sure is familiar to some of your listeners. Uh, I'm not uh, as familiar, you know, to speak on the terms of the various differences in the medications, but I know that there are medications available that have shown some success at slowing the progress of the decline. Um, Again, it depends on the type of dementia. If you have dementia from a traumatic brain injury, let's say you've had an automobile accident, there's probably not the same effect on you uh, as slowing the dementia as if it's a more an organic you know, inherited problem that, that is addressed, you know, through medication. So, I, again, I would say that talking to your physician, you can also be uh, more aware of the physician's specialties. There are doctors that specialize in uh, dementia care or specialize in geriatrics who would have a better understanding of what those treatments are and how they would impact you and, and whether or not it's indicated for what's happening to you. Um, so I think that, you know, good medical advice, good resource uh, advice, uh, accessibility to things like support and uh, information, uh, those things are out there. And since it's such a, um, an epidemic, you know, they, they predict that by 2030, 65 million people in the world will have Alzheimer's type dementia. So it is a hot topic, not only here in the States, but everywhere. And, uh, you know, we're finding that there are new interventions, new research uh, all the time uh, that is being funded to try and get a handle on ways to, you know, make this something that people can really fight uh, and, uh, you know, slow that progression if that's possible. And if curing it would be possible, that would be obviously the best case scenario. I think the worst part of the disease in a lot of cases is to see your loved one go through the personality changes. Can you describe that, what the progression might be? Certainly. I, I think that the first thing we see is uh, denial that anything is wrong. So if I uh, use the wrong word and you correct me, I might get angry and stop talking now, just get up and leave the room because, you know, I'm reacting to a lot of the things that are happening to me, like 
I find people will describe it to me as a headache or a stomach ache, like they can't put their finger on what is quite wrong, especially in early stages when they seem to lose things, um, you know, pieces of time when maybe they weren't as clear or uh, they might deny that their mood changed later in the day, which is quite common. As people get more fatigued, they get to be a little bit edgier as the day progresses. Um, so I would tell any family member, if you recognize signs of an early personality change, the first thing I would do is try to get that person in for a medical workup. Other things can cause changes in personality. Certainly, uh, infections can do that. Um, certainly, if there's uh, some sort of uh, cancer happening to the person, especially in, in the brain, those things can cause changes in personality. And I'm sure there are other disease processes, too, that could do that. So getting a good medical workup. But the other thing I would tell you is that if you notice these kinds of things, take note of what's happening. Try not to correct people or to make them feel embarrassed. I see that as something that does turn people off and make them uh, what, you know, what professionals would tell you is agitation. It's really just a response. How do you feel when you've been, you know, embarrassed or humiliated or you feel that way? There's a certain response, and that's what I was uh, trying to explain to a group last week, is that dementia or no, if you feel embarrassed, you're going to respond to that first, and your memory loss is going to be second to that kind of response. So if you see that, try to be supportive. You know, like in, in homes where people might put things away in the wrong place, and then if you correct them, they get angry, but they really don't know where it goes sometimes. So maybe labeling things. Where do we put the keys? Or What's behind this door on the cabinet? So, you know, I've done that for families where I've put picture and word cues on cabinets or on the dresser drawers so that people know what's back there. Makes it easier for them to get past some of that memory loss. Well, what are some of the other challenges facing us as our population gets older? I think the other big thing is safety. Certainly, we've all read about people who go in search of something and they lose their way and they can't find their way back home. Or um, uh, there's been a story a number of years ago about a woman who left her front door to go to the edge of her driveway to get her mail and didn't know how to get back home and got lost. So I would say that that would be the other big thing you have to be aware of is that as people age, first of all, no adult is really going to acknowledge until something really feels wrong that something is happening. You know, we think, oh, well, maybe I'm just having a bad day or something like that. So being aware and watching what's going on is important for families to do, especially if it's out of character for this person. Like maybe they never got angry and now they get angry a lot. So just being aware of that, um, looking at safety, making sure that driving is something you're aware of. People can be driving and all of a sudden forget where they were going or forget which pedal to push or not know how to turn the car on. Those are all things that happen in early stages of dementia, where it's not a complete break in my memory, but there are things that happen. So um, even recognizing others as, you know, confusing them as someone you, you know, uh, because they look similar or like a small child might resemble the child that you had. So you might go after them in the mall and get lost doing that. So being aware of people's travel patterns, watching their driving skills, you know, ability to navigate, and also, you know, just being aware, too, that there are services like 
through the Alzheimer's Association, you can register the person in a um, program that um, I believe it's called Safe Return. And you can register them so that if they should, you know, uh, get lost, excuse me, if they should get lost, you would be able to call just a single number and that would start an entire process of looking for that person. So there's a whole package of information that goes along, you know, with that service that's very helpful. Barbara, do you have a website? Yes, I do. Uh, my website offers um, a number of opportunities for information. I do have some articles there and uh, certainly a schedule of education that's available to people. You know, it's a trade uh, industry for the most part. Um, and it is uh, barbaraspeedling.com will take you to my website. And, um, you know, if people have questions, they're free. They can contact me through the website. Um, I do a um, an education program here with a local parish in uh, Bayside where we do offer education to the community on various aspects of, you know, dealing with aging and being a caregiver and wellness. And uh, we're going into our third year now of uh, doing these uh, series of discussions. So um, the opportunity, you know, to get information is out there. And uh, if people want to know when and where, they can certainly reach out to me, and I'd be happy to share that with them. Can you please repeat the uh, website, and how do you spell your last name? Yes, it's www.barbara, B-A-R-B-A-R-A, speedling, S-P-E-E-D-L-I-N-G.com. Barbara, thank you for sharing your knowledge with the listeners here on Connor's Corner. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate the opportunity. We need to be informed consumers, and every opportunity to share is a good one. So thank you again. Thank you very much. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. When a desperate parent calls YCS seeking help for their child with special needs... 
we are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As all of our listeners know, it's Plaque History Month. We're going to talk about the, the 1936 Olympics. And we have an author, Deborah Riley Draper. She wrote a book, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice. Welcome to Connors Corner, Deborah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to speaking about this topic and this book and, and of course, celebrating uh, Black History Month. You know, obviously, there are not too many people alive who remember the 1936 Olympics. Where were they held? They were held in Nazi Germany in Berlin, right in the middle of the Third Reich. Okay, so here Hitler's in charge. This is one of his big showpieces where he's going to show off to the world the master race. Absolutely. It is the biggest most expensive piece of propaganda that Hitler invented uh, and invested in. And this was the moment to make Berlin this world-class city and to actually live up to all of the hype and the propaganda. And so initially he said there would not be any Jewish athletes, there would not be any black athletes, but Lenny Riefenstahl and the inner circle kind of convinced him that if you're really going to prove all of your theories, here's an opportunity to defeat the people who are not as good. All right. So here we go. 1936. Now, was there a lot of criticism in the American press about having the Olympics in, in Berlin? There's a huge fight about it. Uh, Mayor LaGuardia was on the side of don't go. Lots of congressmen were on the side of going. The AAU had to have a vote about it. And the vote uh, barely got by two votes separated the people who wanted to go and the people who didn't want to go. And ultimately, um, the goers won. Avery Brundage and uh, his team of people convinced a lot of the voters that this would be the right thing to be able to go to Nazi Germany and and, and face uh, what was there. He had gone on a trip prior to this vote, came back and said, oh, there's nothing to see. Everything's great. There's no discrimination. All of our athletes will be protected. This is 100% something we should support. That was his report. <laughs> All right. Well, that's interesting. Now, okay. How many African-Americans were part of the American Olympic team? There were 400 athletes. 18 were African-American, 16 men, two women, the first two women to ever represent the United States in the Olympics, Tidy Pickett and Louise Stokes. Uh, Louise was in high school. Tidy was a freshman in college. What happened in the competitions? Who what? We all know about Jesse Owens, but who won what competitions? How did they fare? Well, you know, the story of Jesse Owens, the legend of Jesse Owens, has surpassed the story of the other athletes. Uh, Mac Robinson came back with a silver medal, and you may not know, but Mac Robinson is the older brother to Jesse Robinson. So Mac was a world-class athlete before his younger brother, Jesse, started sports. So Mac won. Tuskegee Airman Archie Williams came home with a gold medal in the 400. You know, there were medals won by eight other people. Ralph Metcalf, who would go on to be Congressman Metcalf from he won a gold and he won a silver. He was in that relay race with Jesse. So Jesse won a gold in the relay race. So obviously there were three other people in the relay with him that also won gold. But what, but what ultimately happened 
the the winning of the African American athletes actually put a hole in the theory of Aryan supremacy. Hitler decided he didn't want to watch any more races. He left the stadium and he did not greet the African American winners. How many medals were run were won by the Axis powers? How many by the Americans? And what other notable teams were there? Well, there are fifty one countries represented. The United States won twenty more medals than the Germans. Uh, we won twenty two more golds than the Germans. Um, so we really owned that Olympics. And at the end of the Olympics, Hitler said, you know, the American team would not have been good if they didn't have black athletes. And shame on them for including black athletes. So bit of a sore loser. France showed up well. Greece showed up well. Italy showed up well. There, there were, there was an amazing marathon. Um, winner who was Korean but ran for Japan. So it was a very interesting Olympics because we're marching toward war. And at the same time that the Olympics are happening, concentration camps are being built and there's uh, aggression happening all over Europe. So while the eyes were on the Olympics, lots of political maneuverings were happening across Europe. What was the aftermath politically from the Olympics and the results? The, the, the aftermath politically in the United States, as you know, we were exhibiting a bit of an isolationist foreign policy. And after the Olympics, when we got home, the athletes kind of disappeared because what we did notice was an uh, agitation and aggression coming from Germany. And it was moving very, very quickly. And they were rounding up allies. And we realized that we were actually headed to war. And what was the Olympics was really a big maneuver to show power. Um, and, and, that's, and that's the situation, and that's what you'll find in the book. You'll be able to see the story of America and these athletes from the Great Migration right at the end of World War One to the very beginning of World War Two, and it runs in parallel. You'll see what's happening in Germany, and you'll see what's happening in the United States from the perspective of African-American athletes. Now, with the African-American athletes, were they treated as heroes when they returned to the United States? They were treated as heroes in the Olympic Village. They were treated as heroes for one day when they returned home to a ticker tape parade. And then after that, they returned to second-class citizenship. They returned to Jim Crow laws. They returned to the inability to exercise their right to vote with freedom. They returned to trying to buy a house but getting redlined. They returned to not finding job opportunities. So the, those heroes medals and the, and the gold medals and the silver medals and the bronze medals um, did not open the type of doors that it did for some of their other teammates who went on to get Hollywood contracts and, and great jobs. But eventually, these athletes were incredible, and that's why this story is such a great story of victory and perseverance and courage. They persevered and they fought against you know, racism, and they fought against equality both in Germany and at home, and they forged amazing careers. As chemist, Dr. James Laval would become one of the first black chemists at Kodak, as I said, Ralph Metcalf would become a congressman. And across those 18, they did remarkable things because the fight that they had in the boxing ring or the fight that they had on the on the track you know, filtered into their lives and into their careers. And, and they wanted to be as good as they were off the field as they were on the field and to continue to contribute to their families, to their communities, to their countries in the most remarkable ways. We mentioned Jesse Owens, but maybe we haven't focused enough on him. What were his accomplishments in that Olympics? Wow. Jesse Owens, his accomplishments were, were great. Obviously, he won four gold medals. He won the relay, which is what you know, everyone 
recognizes him for. He won the 200 meters. He won the 100 meters. He won the long jump. Obviously, the, the long jump was a big battle because he beat the big German um, who was allegedly the best long jumper in the world, and Jesse Owens outjumped him. So that is that is the legacy of Jesse Owens. And And when he came back, he was banned from amateur sports because he didn't want to continue to run for the AAU and not be paid for it. So he didn't get, after those Olympics, an opportunity to compete professionally after that. So what did Jesse Owens do with the rest of his life? Oh, he became an amazing PR guy. He coached young people around the world. Um, he played Negro League Baseball. Initially, as before he was getting his career off the ground, he had to run against horses to make money for his family because he had no other opportunities. But over the course of time, he was recognized and he became a part of the 1960 Olympics, which was 24 years later, and really became a part of the world athletic coaching, you know, arena. So he coached, he was a PR guy, and he was a world ambassador for sports. Did any of the African-Americans, they have comments about experiences? Did they suffer any discrimination or worse when they were in Berlin in that, in that year? What they suffered mostly was the fact that uh, Hitler would not recognize them, would not shake their hands, would not acknowledge their wins. Um, what What also happened were they suffered a little bit at the hands of the American coaches as well. The the African-American women were not given coaches. They were not treated well. In fact, women as a whole in sports in the 30s were not treated well. But these women had a double, a double uh, you know, discrimination being both women and being black. So they felt it. What they felt in Germany was exactly the same as what they felt at home. So they were quite accustomed to it. Deborah, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because... When we look at the 1936 Olympics and when we look at this time, this march to World War II, we don't always see the full story. We don't always have that conversation about the Jewish athletes and the black athletes and how they literally began the fight for civil rights, how they began to chip away at what was scientific racism at the time and how they begin to chip away at these preconceived notions that they were second-class citizens and they were inferior. So they put in a tremendous amount of groundwork, and it's a seminal time in the pre-civil rights movement, and they established themselves in a way that would make people around the world think differently and look at African Americans and their contributions differently. And they weren't recognized for that, and I think we all can stand to read a little bit more about heroes and people who won against all odds and who showed integrity and perseverance and operated in truth and courage. I think it's an outstanding story for not just athletes, but people in general around the world. That's why I wrote the book. Did do you know any of the African-American athletes, did they ever come back to Germany during World War II? They absolutely did. Uh, as I said, um, one came back as a Tuskegee Airman. Archie Williams was a mechanical engineer at Berkeley, and he could fly since high school. So when he returned to World War II, he returned as a Tuskegee Airman. Ralph Metcalf returned as a lieutenant colonel. John Woodruff returned as, as an officer as well. All of the boxers returned as um, enlisted men. So they not only went to Germany in 36, they came back to Europe and North Africa. They were stationed a lot of different places um, in the campaigns in World War II. So they fought again. And, and in both instances, they were brave and they were courageous. 
but they were always regarded as Negroes and treated as such. Do you know who was the last uh, of that team who passed away, who lived the longest? John Woodruff lived the longest. He went to University of Pittsburgh undergraduate. He went to NYU for graduate school, and he lived the longest of any of those 18 people. He died in 2007. He was born in 1915. Do you have any last comments about those athletes, those 18 athletes? Um, You know, my last comments would be, these were young people, you know, they were uh, really amazing. And at the end of the day, they didn't really know what they were getting into, both as athletes in the United States and as, a, and as Olympians um, in America. But what they did know was that they wanted to make sure that they represented um, their country with the utmost integrity. And I think that's what we can learn. And that those are my last words. Um, you know, as long as we treat people well, and we treat them fairly, and we look at everyone's story with empathy, whether they're the same as us, or whether we perceive them to be different. That is the best thing we can do is open our minds and our hearts to other people's stories and learn about them and learn about the impact that every community and every person contributes to the betterment of the world. Okay, the name of the book, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, the author, Deborah Riley Draper. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks again to uh, Ms. Draper about, you know, I learned something about the Olympics in, in 1936. The tensions must have been very interesting back then. And I mean, Germany was only three years from starting World War II. And this 1936 Olympics was their time to to try to shine Shine and show everybody else up. Now, next week, yeah. we're going to have completely different topics going on. We're going to be talking to one of my favorite character actors still acting today, Barry Corbin. For those of you who don't remember Barry Corbin or don't know who he is, now, if you see his picture, you're going to know who he is. He You'd was nominated for two Emmys for Northern Exposure. But the, the the performance that I find most memorable by him was he was Lonesome Dove. He was a deputy sheriff there who gets killed by Blue Duck. And, you know, then Robert Duvall kills Blue Duck's gang, and we go on from there. But he really is a very memorable actor, and he loves doing westerns. And just like Wilford Brimley said a few months ago on a show, it's expensive to do westerns because people don't know how to ride anymore. You don't have, you know, stunt riders. You don't have guys who know how to drive a wagon, so forth and so on, which I always thought a western was a cheap movie to make. But now two guys in a row have told me it's very hard <laughs> to make a western. It costs a lot of money to make a western today, so it's easy it's to all blow outside. up cars, I guess. It's outside. You don't know what the weather's going to be like. Also next week, we're going to be talking about a Bay Ridge tradition, the Bay Ridge St. Patrick's Day Parade. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be honored as being Grand Marshal of the Bay Ridge St. Patrick's Day Parade, you know, in 2010. And we're going to try to find – Beth, we got to find that picture. There's me and, and, and the then mayor, Mayor Bloomberg. So there's a picture of Mayor Bloomberg and me. And I think maybe we should try to post it up on our, uh, on our website. I'll have to find you know? it. What? I mean, that was a that was a while back. But it was right. It was it ten somewhere. years ago. You know, get a chance to see Minnie Mac, <laughs> Minnie Mike, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> and you know, I understand Mayor De Blasio does not intend to show up at the Bay Ridge St. Patrick's Day no. Parade. At least that's what we were told. Oh no! Yeah. So how rude! <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing about Mike Bloomberg. At least he would show up at all these St. Patrick's Day parades. He's not rude. No, well, he would show. Well, some people say he is kind of rude, and, you know, but in a different way. 
Again, if we find that picture and we get it up on the website, don't take it in the wrong way. We are not endorsing, you know, Mike Bloomberg for president. But we embrace everyone otherwise. Right, right. You know, listen, he was a good mayor, but that— We disagree with him now. Right. I mean, obviously, I don't think you should take guns away from just everyday citizens who don't do anything wrong. Maybe we should get Justin back on the show again to talk about plans to take his guns away. But Justin was on a couple of weeks ago. He has, you know, a dozen or so guns and, you know, a couple of thousand rounds of ammunition. So (laughs) Prepared for anything. Okay. So next week, Barry Corbin, one of the great Western actors who's in the Cowboy Hall of Fame. And we're going to be talking to... Richie O'Mara about the Bay Ridge St. Patrick's Day Parade, a great tradition that hopefully will go on for many more years. Thank you for listening to us. Lawyer, we'll see you next week at the same time. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.